You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 11 today. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to thank again, I want to thank Corey for preaching last week. I want to thank Mike Thompson for leading our Sunday night Bible study last week. Um, I want to thank all of you who have uh, reached out to my family uh, over Alyssa's surgery and three-fifths of our family having COVID in the last week and a half. And um, we're grateful for all the things that you have done and are doing and the gifts and your outpourings of love to us as well. Um, But we are so thankful for your love, for your uh, for your affection for us during this time. And uh, I am intending today to try and just make sure everybody is safe. Um, so when it comes to invitation time today, I will not be down at the front. James will be standing in for me uh, for that. I don't want to, I don't have any symptoms. I don't think I'm contagious. But again, three-fifths of my family's had it. So I want to steer clear of you if possible. Um, so just want to let you know that will look a little different today. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11, as the authors taught last week through Corey, and uh, he's talking about us running a race. And so today what we're going to look at are these verses that teach us how to train for the race. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11, follow along with me if you will. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he lo- one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So we want to look at three things today as we talk about training for this race that God has set before us. And the first thing we want to look at with verses 3 and 4 is that we are to train by comparison. In verse 2, we were told to look to Jesus, and now we are told to consider Jesus. And that word for consider is a word that means to intently uh, focus upon. It's a word that means to, to not deviate to one side or the other, but to center our attention on that individual or that object here. That individual in the object is Jesus. We're to think of him with effort and precision, but there's this other little piece to this word that talks about comparison. That when you consider yourself against something else, this in this situation, Jesus, that we compare ourselves to him. And so if we think all the way back to the very beginning of this letter, we talked about the reality that this letter is written most likely to Jewish Christians who were facing some kind of persecution. 
We don't know the full extent of it. We don't know exactly how it was facing their community. But at some points, they were dealing with this. And so this is an exhortation. This is an encouragement to them, to us, not to give up, not to falter. And more importantly, not to falter or give up because what we do is we fix our eyes. We consider what Jesus went through. And he fills us in there on what Jesus went through. Look again at verse 3 as the example. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. We know just by what the Bible has recorded for us that Jesus endured verbal hostility. He endured attempts on his life before he actually went to the cross. He endured lies and schemes about him. And one thing that's never lost on me, and hopefully is not lost on you, is that he endured all this, the scripture says, from, by sinners or from sinners. But more importantly, he endured all this largely from the people who he came to save. Sometimes the people you are wanting to help out the most are the people who lash out at you the most. And he endured that for us. Not only did he endure that, but he also says, beginning in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. A, a reference to the cross, to be sure and to be certain, but I also believe he has in mind from what Luke tells us in his gospel. When Jesus is in the garden, I'm going to read Luke 22, verses 40 through 44. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. In other words, Jesus was enduring, he was struggling so much against that fleshly desire to not go to the cross that in doing so, he actually sweats blood. There's an actual medical condition for that. I'm not going to try to pronounce it to you today because I can't. But it is a condition when someone who is under so much grief and is under so much pressure, they, they actually burst capillaries in their skin and their sweat appears as drops of blood. And so the author is saying in the point of, of you resisting, you haven't even resisted yet to the point of shedding blood. Again, it's a comparison. Compare yourself, consider yourself to Jesus who endured all these things, who endured all these things from people he was here to help. Who, who resisted even uh, sweating blood and then ultimately giving his own blood on the cross. And so there's careful consideration here to be made. In their persecution, things certainly were bad. But in their persecution, things could have been much worse. They were experiencing the chicken little syndrome long before we knew what the chicken little syndrome was. Oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And very rarely does the chicken little say, well, it could be worse. And we experience that in our culture all the time. The sky is falling, the sky is falling. Consider Jesus. Consider what he went through. Consider what his life looked like. Consider what he modeled for us. 
before we complain too much that the sky is falling. And we do all this consideration. The, the author intends for his audience here and for us to do this for that phrase that sits right in the middle at the end of verse 3. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider what Jesus has done. Compare your life and what you have done and how you have struggled and compare it to the work of Christ and realize that you've not even been asked to go as far as he has for you. And in doing so, do not grow weary or faint-hearted. One of the commentaries this week that I read said this, Reflection on Christ will renew our energies and reinvigorate the soul. Reflection on Christ will renew our energies and reinvigorate the soul. We're told, we're told to consider, focus on Jesus. I've had the opportunity a few times in my life to coach young golfers. And one of the first things I teach them is this. When you are on the golf course, you do not look at the water, and you do not look at the sand, and you do not look at the trees that surround you. You look at the fairway and the green. Because when you start to focus on all these other things, guess where your shot most likely is going to end up? We consider Jesus. We put our focus on him. And we don't focus on all the things that are around us that are tempting us to say the sky is falling. We see what he has done and what he is doing. And more importantly, even what the promise is of what he will do for us. So we train by comparison. Secondly, we train through the pain. In verses 5 through 10, the author uses this earthly metaphor, example, of fathers and discipline. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, one in four kids in our nation live without an adoptive or step or biological father, around 18.4 million children. And the statistics about that are just frightening, honestly. For those kids, they're four times greater at risk of poverty. They're seven times greater at risk of teenage pregnancy. They're twice a greater risk of childhood obesity. They're twice of a greater risk of dropping out of high school. Other issues that they're included in and behavioral problems more likely to be subject to physical sexual abuse or manipulation by someone older than them. Higher involvement in crime and drug and alcohol use. This is not even factoring in the biological step or adoptive fathers who don't father well. The father position is important. And let me say this really clearly. I'm not saying any of this to shame or guilt anyone who's in that situation right now. There are many, many godly women who are raising godly children to the best of their abilities. And it is not my purpose here with those statistics to say, see, this is a bad thing for you. But it's an understanding for us that the father position is important. For those of you who are fathers, your role is important. And what he says to us here in the scriptures is he makes that earthly comparison about earthly fathers and discipline. And he gives it to us in the image of or in the description of what God does for us. Look again here at verses 5 and 6. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation or the encouragement that addresses you as sons? And he quotes from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Here, the author is using what would have been known as the Greek Septuagint, which would have been the Greek translation of the Old Testament. But he says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He uses it both as a noun and a verb. That discipline is something we experience. And the verb form meaning the Lord is the one doing the discipline. The general meaning here of discipline is teaching and instruction. Now this one does sometimes include punishment and consequences. But again, it's punishment and consequences with the intent of forming good habits of obedient behavior and a guidance toward maturity. Discipline is not beating. Discipline is not rage. Discipline is not out of anger. Discipline is out of love. And he says of this discipline of the Lord, first of all, in verse 7, we are to endure it. It's that same terminology that he's used earlier in chapter 12. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured from sinners. The idea of enduring here is to face with courage, not with retreat. And the very interesting point here from Hebrews 12 is that the discipline they are facing is under the controlling hand of God. Look again at verse 7, if you will. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Now, if they're under persecution, the author is not saying that God is persecuting them. But he is saying that God is allowing that in their lives to be used as a discipline to correct them, to rebuke them, to train them, to guide them into the maturity that they need to possess to see through that situation and all others as well. When discipline is presented to us in the Bible, it's usually presented in one of two ways. That is a discipline of or by God, or that is a self-discipline, often called self-control. It's in Galatians 5, and 23 as part of the fruit of the Spirit. And it is that self-discipline that we use to discipline ourselves to study the Word, to be in prayer, to be giving and generous people, to be committed to the body of Christ, and so on and so forth. But here the idea is that it is the discipline that is under the controlling hand of God. God is treating you as sons. We see God doing that all throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New. His corrective discipline is seen in David's life. After David commits adultery with Bathsheba, the son dies, violence occurs within David's home. There's rebellion against the king and his throne. And that was all part of God's corrective discipline in his life. We see God's preventative discipline on Paul in the New Testament when he's given a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. It was God's preventative discipline to keep Paul from thinking more of himself than he should. We see God's educational discipline in the story of Job. When Job finally listens to his friends too much for too long and starts questioning God, and God shows up in the scene and says, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who are you to say anything to me when I tell the seas how far to go and I st- store up the snow and the hail and the lightning and on and on and on? We understand that we endure this discipline for sometimes it is God's discipline on our lives, and we're thankful for it. Look again at verses 8 and 9. If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We're to be thankful for God's discipline because God's discipline on our lives proves we are his children. If we lack the discipline of God, that should be a red flag in my life and yours. 
Now, it doesn't always come about by virtue of persecution. I would say most commonly it works out in our lives as conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we've messed up, when we've said something we should have, shouldn't have said or acted a way we shouldn't have acted or done whatever the case may be, the Holy Spirit comes in with conviction, and that's part of God's corrective discipline. But if, if we can do that and never sense the Holy Spirit's corrective discipline in our lives, that should be a mark of trouble. Because he says the discipline that comes from God proves we are his children. Tom Landry, the great coach of Dallas Cowboys, made this statement. He said, the job of a coach is to make men what they don't want to do or make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. God challenges us often to do what we don't naturally want to do, but he does that in order to make us who he wants us to be. And the discipline here, again, seems to be the allowance of persecution in the Jewish believers' lives. It may not always be persecution in my life or your life or our lives collectively, but the discipline of God should be there in some form or fashion if we are his sons and his daughters. And when we see it, we are to endure it. When we see it, we're to be thankful for it because he does it out of his love for us. The third point with this little discipline piece here is this. This discipline produces holiness. Look again at verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Though you and I are made holy in Jesus Christ, we are to pursue holiness in our lives. And when we fail to do so, God will discipline us as sons and daughters. This is practical. This is daily holiness. Holiness which sets our lives apart to God's will and to his purpose in his kingdom. The Bible always teaches this about holiness and about being saved and righteousness and so forth. There is positional holiness. There is positional righteousness in that in Christ we are at the fullest of those things. But there is practical daily living out of these things as well. And what the author is getting across to us is that if we endure and if we are thankful and if we recognize this is coming from God because we're his sons and daughters, it works to make us holy. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, he chastens, the old school word for disciplines, he chastens us for our profit that we might share his holy character. In a world where so often we just want to talk about how God is love and God is mercy and so on and so forth, this, this can be a difficult topic for us to understand. But understand that his discipline comes out of his love. His discipline comes out of his mercy. It comes out of his grace. Throughout the entire Old Testament, Israel messes up. A prophet comes. There's discipline coming. You need to change. You need to alter, you need, you need to, to deviate from what you're doing. And when they didn't, the discipline came, the correction came. But it was always out of his love. So we consider, we train through the pain, and then lastly, we train for the prize. Look at verse 11 again. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The reality is no one enjoys discipline. (laughs) 
No one enjoys being disciplined as a child from a father or a, a grandfather, mother, grandmother, or anybody else who may be in charge of them. Nobody enjoys that. Uh, the reality of it is also that if you're attempting to do something great and you self-discipline yourself, that's not enjoyable. The long hours that a musician puts in, the long hours that an athlete puts in, the long hours that a novelist puts in, whatever people are doing to to hone their skills, to hone their craft, to hone their talents, that self-discipline is not enjoyable. I never will forget when I heard Ray Allen, who was an NBA shooting guard out of the University of Connecticut, played for the Supersonics and uh, the Heat and the Celtics. I think that's all he prayed for. I never will forget the day that I read that he showed up at an NBA practice one day, realizing he was feeling really sluggish and not keeping up with the rest of the team, and he realized, oh, what I ate today was a cheeseburger. I'm not going to eat cheeseburgers anymore. That could not have been enjoyable. But for 18 years, he disciplined himself to not only not eat cheeseburgers, but to not eat any red meat so that he could get his body to the peak performance that he wanted to get it to, to be the NBA all-star he became. Nothing is is enjoyable about discipline, but we endure it and we are thankful for it because it yields a result. Here the result or the prize the author says, is this peaceful fruit of righteousness. Again, similar to holiness, this is day-to-day peaceful fruit of righteousness. We, we are positionally righteous in Christ right now. We will not be any more righteous than we can be for all of eternity than we are in Jesus. But on a daily basis, we are to be living not only holy lives, but righteous lives. And that it is called peaceful here, I think is very important. Jesus says in John 14, he would give us a peace that the world could not give us. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul writes about the peace that we have with God because we are now justified or made right or made righteous in Christ. There's a peace that we're to have with others in the body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, as Paul winds up that letter, he says this, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Those are just three examples of what the Bible talks about peace. And the peaceful righteousness that we have comes from Jesus. Kent Hughes said it this way in his commentary. This is heaven's peace experienced in an unpeaceful world. The peace of righteousness that this training yields for us is heaven's peace that we experience now in an unpeaceful world. It takes us back to understanding our righteousness in Jesus. It takes us back into understanding that because we are positionally holy and righteous in him, even when we mess up, it does not change that. But yet we strive for it in our training in these days that we have on this earth. The only way anyone's standard of righteousness can be good enough is to be found righteous in Jesus. The Pharisees were seen as the standard. They were seen as as the top echelon of righteousness. And what Jesus told his followers and tells us in the scriptures in Matthew 5 is that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you're out of luck. 
We all have spiritual heroes. We all have pastors or preachers or authors or, or people that we've learned from or that we've placed on a high pedestal. And you can take anybody that you might have that fits that category and you might place them up and Jesus would say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you're out of luck. And you might go, well, how can I have that righteousness? You only have that righteousness through Jesus. You only have that holiness through a relationship with him. You're only trained for through the discipline of God to produce holiness and produce righteousness if you have Jesus. And there's no other way to it for anybody who has or ever will live. We endure this discipline. We are thankful for this discipline because it produces righteousness and a peaceful righteousness in our lives. As I thought about how to close, I thought, what, what does peaceful righteousness really mean for me? For me, it means some of these things. Peaceful righteousness that I train for is the acknowledgement that I am fully accepted by God. I'm fully accepted by God. I am fully loved in Jesus Christ. It makes not matter what men have to say about me. It makes not matter what troubles I've had or struggles I've had or sins I still hold on to from time to time. I am fully accepted by him. I am fully saved and loved in Jesus. Peaceful righteousness is that there's no earthly situation that's greater than God's hand. Here for these Jewish Christians who were undergoing some kind of persecution, they had to have thought, this must be some kind of punishment from God. We, we must be doing something wrong or else God would not allow this on us. And yet what the author encourages them to understand is that this is even a discipline from God that's coming upon them for their good. That even that persecution was not greater than God and his own hand. It's the acknowledgement that God will discipline me. But he disciplines me by his love, not his anger, not his wrath. The cross has turned away the wrath of God in my life. He disciplines me by his love. And it is the foundation of being able to live a life of peace in an otherwise very chaotic world. That we train. We train by comparison, we train through the pain, and we train for this result that we may be able to live daily in this peace-filled righteousness of Jesus Christ. The great heroes of the faith learned that even the discipline of God proved his love for them. But they learned that without having seen Jesus. Now we who are on the other side of the cross are able to see in a different light, in a different way. That we would faithfully endure, that we would faithfully train, that we would faithfully consider him who secured for us all that we would ever, ever need. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.